Hello, and welcome to Thin Air, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the missing with new episodes every two weeks. Thin Air is hosted by me, Daniel Calderon. And me, Jordan Sims. We are two friends and writers who wanted to share the stories of those left behind and the social issues that surround these haunting cases. For more information about us and our podcast, check out thinairpodcast.com, where you'll find blogs on all our episodes, links to our sources, and more. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com thinair. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals from blueapron.com slash thinair. Want to support our podcast directly? Head on over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. We've recently been working on Patreon-exclusive mini-episodes, available for only $5 a month. These mini-episodes let us discuss topics and cases that just don't quite fit into our regular episodes. We also get to explore extra content and commentary on episodes we've done before. For example, two weeks ago, our mini-episode was more on David Snedden and included extended interviews and our thoughts on the recent return and death of North Korean detainee Otto Warmbier. We wanted you guys to get a sense of what these episodes are like, so here's a clip from that episode. If Trump did personally assure Otto's return as Tillerson claims, why like this and why now? And what conversations are happening about Americans in North Korea? To me, the most likely thing to happen was that Otto was returned by North Korea once they realized he was gravely ill. As Greg said, you can't have him actually die there because that would look terrible, which to me is strange because doesn't it look terrible already? Anyway, it's hard for me to view Trump as being responsible for Otto's return, but even if he was, he was too late. Trump was too late. All of that aside, I did email and tweet Donald Trump to do or say something about David Snedden. If Trump is doing what he says he is, he can bring up the issue of Snedden, and he can also help this issue in a way that Obama apparently couldn't or wouldn't, depending on who you ask. In addition to these exclusive mini-episodes for five bucks a month, you'll also get your very own copy of interactive episode transcripts, with links to our sources, pictures, and more, all for your reading pleasure. So what are you waiting for? Check us out over at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. What exactly happened on June 21st, 1977, the day 31-year-old Charlotte Moriarty and her six-month-old son disappeared, isn't exactly clear. And the details of what happened that day wouldn't emerge for decades. What we do know is that morning, around 9 a.m. in Haula, a city near Honolulu, Hawaii, Charlotte put her infant son Marx, that's Marx like Karl Marx, M-A-R-X, 
into a stroller and took him for a walk to a nearby store. All of these details were later reported to police by Charlotte's boyfriend at the time and father to Mark's, a man named Mark Barnes. Around 1 p.m. that day, Mark told police that he found his son's stroller abandoned at a nearby bus stop. This would be the last physical sign of Charlotte and her baby. A frustrating aspect of this story is how little media attention it received. We talk about that on the podcast a lot. I scoured the archives of Honolulu's local papers for stories about them written at the time they went missing, and I couldn't find anything. Not one story or blurb about the missing mother and son appears to have been written then. Some of the only information I could find about Charlotte and baby Marx's disappearance wasn't published until a 2001 article in the Honolulu Star Bulletin, which is when her family contacts a psychic and the media about their case. There was a lot of later speculation, and for a long time, Mark was considered suspicious by many who knew Charlotte. He didn't report them as missing until July 10th, almost 20 days after they disappeared. He said, to quote that same 2001 article, Charlotte had been missing on several private occasions, but she had returned all right, end quote. Also in his initial report to police, Mark noted that Charlotte may have been struggling with mental health issues, claiming that she had been seeing a psychiatrist, and he was, quote, afraid that she was not able to care for Mark's in a competent manner. Charlotte's family disputed a lot of the information Mark initially provided to police and asserted that she wouldn't disappear at that time, especially considering that her eight-year-old daughter, who she had shared custody of, was coming to visit her around the time she went missing. They also state that Mark incorrectly reported certain aspects of this story, like Mark's age and his relationship to Charlotte. He claimed they were married when they weren't. In 2001, Charlotte's sister Patricia hired a psychic to try and learn what had happened to Charlotte and baby Marks, which is when the Honolulu newspaper picked up the story. Patricia said in that article, quote, My sister and her son are dead. They didn't just disappear. The psychic indicated that they both had died violently and were buried on the, quote, windward side of Oahu. It was clear from the article that both Charlotte's sister and daughter believed that Charlotte and Marks, whose full name was Marks Panama Moriarty Barnes, were dead and had met violent ends. And this is where the disappearances of baby Marks and mother Charlotte stayed, with very little information and a cloud of suspicion around Mark. That is, until January of 2011, when a Philadelphia man named Steve Carter decided to visit and search the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's online database. That's when he saw, for the first time, a picture of himself as a baby. That baby was Mark's Panama. And that was the moment Steve Carter discovered that he had been considered a missing person for nearly 34 years. I went in, I plugged in Hawaii, plugged in male, and I plugged in missing for 33 years. Because uh, I had just turned 34. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, probably been missing about 33 years. And then uh, what I got in return was see five or six people, um, all Native Hawaiians, and, and nobody really looked like me. 
Yeah, I took a second. I was like, well, I just turned 34. Maybe if I change it to 34, uh, I'll get a different return when uh, the picture of uh, Marx came up. Did you instantly recognize yourself? It was an age progression photo uh, of what I look like at 28. It was, it was quite, I mean, it was pretty much spot on. The image they had was, uh, I mean, it was really striking. And then as you went through the description, you know, it said Mark's missing uh, at six months, which is right around the same time I turned up in an orphanage. His birthday is January 17th. My birthday is January 16th. So everything just started to click. Something that was really amazing to me was that Steve found all of this out during his lunch break. I was, I was at work. Yeah, my office door closed, and uh, it was it was an amazing feeling. Uh, you know, it, it, it's tough to explain uh, when you're adopted and you don't know who your parents are, you've never really been interested, and then all of a sudden, you know, within a, a matter of minutes, you find out exactly who you are. It's surreal. Immediately tried to reach out to my wife, and then I started reaching out to my friends and my parents. Started to get the ball rolling, and actually later that day, I reached out to police to let them know that, you know, I believed I might be the person in the in the photo, and you know that's what really culminated in me becoming Mark's priority. The story of how Marks became Steve Carter began when he was adopted from an orphanage in Hawaii in the early 80s. My parents were uh, military and they'd been stationed in Hawaii and that's when they decided they were going to adopt. The adoption agency, they got a hold of my parents, uh, said we have a you know, three and a half year old Caucasian native Hawaiian boy who's, who's looking for adoption. Would you be interested in meeting him? And uh, that's when I met my parents. Two of the most caring people uh, you'd ever meet. My mother is a school teacher. My father is ex-military, uh, a lawyer, very involved in the community, very involved in the church, uh, and just great role models. How Steve made it to the orphanage in the first place is somewhat unclear. According to a 2012 People article, Charlotte was, quote, taken to a psychiatric hospital and Marx was placed into protective care. A few days later, she left against medical advice, leaving her son to become a ward of the state. This would have been shortly after the two went missing, when Marx was around six months old. As soon as I kind of identified myself as Marx Panama, you, know, you began doing searches on the internet, uh, trying to get as much information as possible, and that's where I kind of got the backstory. There's always talking postpartum depression, you're talking about Hawaii in the 1970s. So a number of different things that could have gone on. When talking to a half-sister who knew her, she was eight years old when I went missing and when her mom went missing. To talk to her, you know, she was the light of her life, you know, very full of life, funny, smart, beautiful, she would never just pick up and disappear. There was too much to live for. You know, I think in the end, I think it might have just been too much. You know, after having children of my own, uh, I know that after six months of dealing with a baby, uh, it can be a lot. You know, it can be very taxing. And, you know, my heart goes out to anybody who has to deal with that on their own or, you know, isn't prepared to deal with uh, what comes next. Until he was three, Marx was only available as a foster child, and his eventual parents wanted a full adoption. So Marx was in an orphanage in state custody for three long years before he was adopted. 
How the orphanage and psychiatric facility didn't connect the dots between Charlotte and baby Marx's disappearance is unclear, but as I noted before, this was not a highly publicized case at the time, and information about them may not have been available. There may have been no dots to connect, which is strange. Maybe because of Charlotte's history of going missing, police simply thought she would show up with baby Marks. Whatever the case was, when we asked Honolulu police for an interview, they claimed that even though the case is an open investigation, there was no one available to talk to us about this case. What was your adopted parents' reaction to this news? Um, they were, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to make sure that I knew it, it, they, it was a legal adoption. You know, everything they did was legal. Uh, and I think they were nervous to think that I thought that maybe they had taken me when I, I you know, I completely knew that uh, if you ever met my parents, you'd realize uh, breaking law in any way is totally against their court. But she wanted to let me know, oh, you know, we did everything we could. You know, here are all your adoption records. I was like, I get it, mom. You know, no need. Um, but they were just kind of awestruck. Other articles, including one from CNN, noted that when he was placed into the orphanage, whoever placed him there, and I think it's likely that that person was in fact Charlotte, gave him a different name, which was Tenzin Amiya. Charlotte remains missing. Still have yet to find out what has happened to her. When we did the People Magazine article, the same uh, gentleman from the National Center of Missing Exploited Children who did my age progression photo uh, performed an age progression photo of her, of what she would look like at 65. And that was actually run in the article as a, a chance to try to locate her as well. I know my sister still uh, has hope that she's out there and that someday they'll be able to find her. Uh, but nobody really knows what happened to her. After discovering his identity as Baby Marks, Steve was also able to speak with his biological father, Mark. Uh, it was probably one of my most difficult conversations I've had. You know, I can easily talk for quite some time, uh, and I was at a total loss. Didn't really know what to talk about, how to approach the subject, how to gauge his reaction, um, and didn't know any of the backstory. So it was, it was quite a difficult conversation. I mean, the first thing he said to me was, uh, you know, how's your mom? And I was like, I was going to ask you the same thing. I have no idea. And I think he was kind of flabbergasted by the fact that she hadn't taken me and we hadn't been living somewhere. In an interview that came out with Mark Barnes after Steve's identity was confirmed, Mark, who we tried to contact for an interview but did not respond, said, quote, I am elated. It's a miracle. This totally gives hope to everyone with a missing child." End quote. One has to imagine that he feels somewhat vindicated since Steve has been found alive. My father was a, a main suspect in the case and nobody really knew what happened. And the fact that it, it was weird to kind of read through all these you know, message boards about you know finding different people and what do you think happened and, all this other stuff without anybody really knowing that that person has been found. Like, you almost want to chime in on the message board and be like, yeah, guess what? I got your theory for you. An important reason why Steve decided to go to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website in the first place was the story of another missing infant whose name was Carlina White. It really uh, culminated uh, right after the Carlina White case in 2010. 
Uh, that is when I identified the picture on the missingkids.com website. What about her story really stuck out to you? What did you find fascinating about it? Just that uh, she was able to find herself from a picture based off her at the age of, I think, uh, 12 or 18 days. But it wasn't until we started thinking about having kids that I really started wondering about her medical history. And when her story popped up, uh, that she had no idea. And, you know, it kind of struck me as strange. And it came up three or four times that day. And at that point, I was like, well, you know what? I, nobody really knows how I ended up in an orphanage or why I was there or anything surrounding it. So um, just uh, on a lark, she decided to go to the website. Carlina had been taken from a hospital when she was only 19 days old. This happened in New York City. A woman posing as a nurse stole her and raised her as her own, giving her the name Nettie Nance. Carlina had no idea that the woman who raised her wasn't her birth mother until she got pregnant herself. That's when she discovered that her birth certificate was forged. After her daughter was born, Carlina began asking more questions. She searched the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's database for herself, and that's where she found a picture of herself as a baby, as well as an age-progressed photo that looked somewhat like her. This is when she knew that she, much like Steve Carter, had been born someone else. Both of these stories, Steve Carter and Carlina White, really got us thinking about the nature of infant abductions. Of all missing persons cases, infant abductions are particularly haunting because, as was the case with both Carlina and Steve, the infant who becomes an adult may not be aware they're even considered a missing person. Fortunately, we were able to speak with someone who could help us provide some context in these unique missing persons cases. My name is Katie Spina. I am the program specialist for Project Alert and Infant Abduction Response at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Found on their website is a crucial document called Infant Abduction Statistics, which traces data in these cases from 1965 to May of 2017. This document was the focus of our interview. The first thing we discussed was that these types of missing persons cases, as officially reported, are rare, but this may be an underreported issue. Katie is going to reference NECMEC here, which is the acronym for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They're not as common as you probably might think. We're looking at probably an average of three to four infant abductions per year. That does include the three locations that we are tracking, so it's hospitals, home, and other. You have to remember that our stats are only based on information that is either being reported to NECMEC or that we're finding through the internet. So if there's an infant abduction that is not being documented somewhere in the media um, or on social media or we're not getting a report from law enforcement or maybe the family, we don't have record of that. So our three to four is just based on what NECMEC knows. Katie also noted that the infant abductions described in this particular document do not include familial abductions, which is where a case like Steve Carter slash Baby Marks would be placed. If you're referring to kind of like a family abduction, um, that's usually somebody that is either a, a mother or a father or a grandmother outside of maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend of the, of the mother. Those are family abductions. We do track those here at NECMEC. They aren't included in these particular stats. But it is, we do see infants abducted from family members um, or somebody 
close to the family. In other words, the purpose of this report would be to provide information about non-familial infant abductions, abductions like Carlina White, who was taken by a stranger. This document notes patterns seen in these particular kinds of abductions. Since 1965, a noticeable trend is that infant abductions have been on the decline. An important reason for this is that hospitals, one of the places infant abductions are likely to occur, started to take serious safety precautions. There has been a decrease in infant abductions from hospitals, um, and I think a great deal of the, the decrease has come with increases in technology and security. Hospitals, they now issue specific staff badges that are specific to mother and baby units. They might be coded pink or they might have like a baby footprint. So it's very specific to the hospital and specific to that unit. They have uh, electronic tagging systems for in infants. So if, if they get close to a door, a, a, an alarm goes off and shuts down the unit. Then the one last thing that, that hospitals have actually done in terms of preventing these abductions is actually educating parents. And I think that has been lacking in the past is now they, um, they teach parents when they come in for prenatal care, they actually start their training there. And then when the baby goes into the mother-baby unit, they take the time to educate the parents on making sure they ask questions, asking to see badges when a nurse comes in, um, make sure that they know that babies shouldn't be arm-carried and that they will always be transported in bassinets. And then they also take the opportunity to educate the parents on social media and make sure that it's if they're going to post things, keep it very vague, keep it general. You don't need the full name, you know, hospital, all that location information. Because a friend of a friend could easily look at a post and see a baby information from somebody else if they don't keep their information private. The NECMEC report also provides a list of characteristics of a typical infant abductor, a woman of childbearing age who doesn't want to harm the baby, but wants to raise it as her own. Uh, they want a baby. They um, are usually of uh, overweight that appear to be um, pregnant or in, make somebody else believe that they'd be pregnant. They have that instinct to be a mother. When they're looking for a baby and they attempt to abduct a baby, it's primarily for keeping a relationship going. So they've lied to a, a significant other or a partner that they are either married to or are living with and they use their manipulative behavior to kind of keep that person in the relationship. So we haven't seen too many males be the main abductor. Um, there might be a male accomplice, but for the most part, they're all female abductors. They may have experienced a miscarriage or a loss of a baby prior to the abduction, so it could be a stillbirth or the child was taken away. So it could be, um, there usually is some kind of loss involved prior to the abduction. That's actually common in some of the some of the ones that we've seen recently. And then they are, usually are familiar with the area and they frequent hospitals um, or the healthcare facilities in the community. So they're almost like, they're kind of like shoppers. And they look around and they specifically target those particular hospitals and they're, they're very familiar with the facility and, and their surroundings. Another trend that I noticed was that most of these cases, they don't usually involve harming the child or violence. Does that imply that these infants are being cared for by their abductors in the long term? I mean, we've had some really big recoveries 
when it comes to infants. Carlina is one of them. We're seeing a lot of these. The, the primary reason to take these babies is to care for them as their own. There is no ulterior motive. There's no sexual gratification out of abducting infants. It's simply just to replace almost a void, primarily just to keep the baby, raise them as their own, and live out the life with a child. We do have still missing infants in our database, and I think there is a chance that there are many more uh, potential recoveries after a long period of time. This was a major idea that stuck out to us, that these cases, while so tragic, seem to have a good chance of being solved. Since these cases aren't likely to involve violence, not every case, but in most, infants who were taken as a child are likely to have made it to adulthood because they're being raised and cared for. As these infants become teenagers and adults, they start to ask the same questions that Carlina and Steve did. So today, we look at one of these cases up close, a case of infant abduction that has yet to be solved in the hopes that this baby, who was born David Blockett in 1980, is out there looking for answers today. Join us for David's story right after this short break. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I love making Blue Apron meals at home. With each meal, I become a better chef, learning new techniques in the kitchen to prepare and cook my food. One of my recent favorites was their chicken and honey glazed peach with sweet potato, spinach, and Thai basil. It was delicious and easy to make. The recipe called for preparing the sweet potatoes in coconut milk. The taste was incredible, and I couldn't believe I had never thought to do that before. Some of their upcoming meals include seared chicken and tomatillo salsa and Caribbean chicken curry. They also have vegetarian options each week, like sweet corn and pepper empanadas, and whole grain pasta and peas with ricotta cheese and mint. To get your first three meals for free with free shipping, go to blueapron.com slash thin air. Thanks again to Blue Apron for supporting this podcast. If you want to support us as well as eat delicious home-cooked meals, redeem our offer by going to blueapron.com slash thin air. David Easel Blockett was born in Newport News, Virginia on November 26, 1980. Fifteen days later, on December 11th, he would be taken, never to be seen by his family again. Vanessa, David's mom, was young when she had him. At 16, she gave birth to her first son, Frederick. Me and my mom was close because we grew up together. When people see me and her, they used to think that I was her brother. And she'd tell them, she'd tell them that I was her son. They, we, we grew up close, close, tight, like brothers and sisters, even though that wasn't the case. My mom was 16 when she had me, so she was still living with my grandparents. Basically, I just stayed with my grandparents growing up, you know, mom young. So, I mean, it wasn't really much, you know, grandparents took care of you. My name is Frederick Alon Blockett, and my brother is David 
block it. At the time, Vanessa was in a relationship with a man named Fred West, who was David's father, but not Frederick's. Fred and Frederick didn't exactly get along. No, I never really had any relationship with Fred because he wasn't he wasn't my father, but it was just some things that happened between me and him, well, him and my mother, that I didn't like when I was growing up. So I didn't have a relationship with him at all. To be honest with you, I, I kind of didn't like him at all um, because I saw my mom go through a lot of things dealing with that dude. On the day that David went missing, the family was at home when a woman knocked at the door. Fred West, David's father, was in prison during this time. So, Vanessa Blockett, a teenager, she was a teen mom. Uh, She was at home with her two boys. David was just two weeks old, a little baby. My name is Jessica Larche. I'm a morning anchor and special projects reporter at WTKR News 3. In 2011, Jessica took on David's story as a multi-part series to help it get more media coverage. I could not believe the lack of media coverage on David's case when it happened and in the years since. That drove me even more to um, want to do the story. Because I just, I just couldn't believe it. I said this little baby was stolen from his home, and I thought I was going to find a treasure trove of previous stories, and I found the opposite. That was really heartbreaking because you have to imagine Vanessa and her family um, had to have been begging for coverage. I know that they've always asked questions, and, and Frederick has too. When we reached out to him in 2011, it, you know, it caught him off guard. I reached out to the Newport News Police Department and I said, hey, is this still an open case? They said, no, no one's looked into it. And and I think at that point, it had been over a decade, um, even more than that. Um, And so, you know, I started digging and asking questions um, and it's, it's, it's just an incredible story. Back to that day, which is December 11th, 1980. That's when a woman knocks at their door. I remember Vanessa saying that she could tell it was a, uh, it looked like a wig that the woman had on, sharp cut veins, high arched eyebrows, bleached on a gold necklace, brown skin, large hips, a full figured woman. And it, and it seemed uh, to Vanessa that the woman may have been like in her 30s at the time. And you gotta imagine, uh, even though she was getting help from her parents, uh, she was overwhelmed. Some woman comes knocking at the door, and she looks official. This woman looks official. She's got on a bag. She has a clipboard, and she says, you know, I'm Marie Kelly with the Department of Social Services, and I want to take the boy to she, – she said it was a Christmas cute baby contest, um, something along those lines, and, and that's how she was able to, to get Vanessa to let her children go and you know, apparently the woman convinced Vanessa that all, all, the, all the other children in the neighborhood are going, the kids won't enjoy it, and, and that's how she was able to convince her. And so it's quite sad. She thought she was sending her kids to a good time. And the, there's the other information that apparently the woman made conversation with Vanessa about she had children of her own and um, she was having problems with her husband and 
Yeah, all, all these things. So she really, really tried to um, befriend Vanessa and make Vanessa feel like she was confiding in her. We can't ask Vanessa what this woman was like and what the story was that she told exactly. Vanessa passed away in 1997 from an aneurysm at the young age of 35. Whatever this woman said exactly, Vanessa clearly didn't think that this woman meant her child any harm and allowed the woman to take both David and Frederick. You know, you think a 19-year-old, she's got her babies with her, this woman looks official, she seems caring, and Vanessa says, it's okay. You gotta think, this is the early 80s at the time, and there's not that heightened sense of awareness Um, that heightened sense of, you know, people having criminal minds out there. So there was an app to trust people more. And so I can, I can see how she felt comfortable allowing this official looking woman to take her babies to a contest that was, you know, not very far from their home in, in Newport News. You know, anytime social workers come to your house saying that they're social workers and they're taking you places, that's just kind of odd, and I and I don't realize why my grandmother didn't pick up on it. But back in those days, everybody was caring and loving and opened their doors to strangers. So you know she wouldn't have picked up on it, especially if you have the right credentials, you're wearing the right uniform and everything else. She's not gonna pick up on it. You know nowadays I think we are more strict when it comes to people coming to our house talking about taking our kids places now, and we don't know. Them. We, we, we run background checks right then, checking Facebook accounts, online and everything. You mean all that stuff is handy right now. You know, but back in the days it wasn't it wasn't like that. Frederick, who was only three at the time, went with the woman who would take his brother. He remembers a car ride and a man who was driving. I just remember being in the back of the car and um there was a cassette tape. And I was just pulling the tape out of the cassette tape while my brother was sitting there beside me. And the lady that I saw, I remember a guy, he was facing forward. He had like a medium afro. And the lady had like the nurse's, like nurse's outfit on with the nurse's head and everything. And that's all I can just, I just remember the back of their heads. They never really turned around and really said anything to me. And if they did, I, I, I couldn't remember. Frederick doesn't think that the woman and man were interested in him, but rather wanted his infant brother. They, they didn't really want to take me. They wanted the baby. They didn't really want me um, because I was a little bit older. And it's easier when you're a newborn baby because you don't know who your parents is or who your daddy is. You just know who raised you. So it was easy for them to keep the baby and me knowing who my parents was and who um, who my daddy was, it was kind of hard. The woman in the car, do you remember what her attitude was like? Did she speak to you in any negative way or in, in any way at all that you can remember? No, she, I mean, they didn't, they didn't really speak at all. From what I recall, they didn't really speak at all. I mean, when they was driving, they just kept their head forward, I guess because they didn't want me to see their face. You know, so they just kept their head pointed forward. They didn't really speak at all. 
As was later confirmed, there was no contest that day, and there was no woman named Marie Kelly who worked for the Department of Social Services. At some point later that day, they dropped Frederick off in an area close to Newport News called Hampton, which was then underdeveloped farmland. According to reports, Frederick is found wandering the streets with a note pinned to his shirt. The note had his home address written on it. What Frederick remembers is not of being dropped off randomly, but at a specific house. Um, I had to talk to the police, but I I don't remember um, talking to them. Um, I know most of the talking was uh, my mom and my grandmother because um, they, they knew more than what I did. Um, because they just put me out somewhere in Hampton with a note attached to me. And um, they said some lady found me. I don't know who the lady was. Um, I can't recall, but it was a lady that found me wandering the streets, took me to a house. But see, I remember being dropped off at a person's house, and they telling me to knock at this door, and I knocked at the door. That's what I remember as a child. I don't remember remember wandering in the street, but they said when they found me, they found me wandering in the street. I don't remember that. I remember, I remember specifically being dropped off at somebody's house, and they told me to go up there and knock on the door. When Jessica interviewed Frederick for her story in 2011, she couldn't believe how much he remembered from this event at such a young age. So grateful that he was willing to share his story because his his recollection of that day is impeccable. And he even mentioned that when we talked in 2011 that he wished he could remember more, but I'm amazed at what he re- remembers already. Um, and, and I know that that um, has been a great help. In, in asking you like what you remember about that day, I wonder, do you ever feel frustrated that you don't remember more? I do. They did want to do uh, hip, hypnosis with me uh, when I was younger. Um, but they didn't. But see, this is a thing that the mind does to help you remember traumatic stuff. You end up dreaming about it. So I, I didn't had a couple of dreams of this thing. And you know, it's, it's not it's, it's not understanding why the dreams keep coming up, but I didn't had a couple of dreams about me being in the back of the car with me and my brother um, growing up in my adulthood. So it's like my mind wants to open up and show me a little bit more. You know, I just, I don't know. I done dreamed about it so many times. That I remember getting put out. And where I was put out was a whole lot of silos. The area that I was in was silos and picket, white picket fences. Like it was a farmland, a farm area. That's what I remember. But them, them are like little bits and pieces that come to me, you know, every once in a while, I, you know, had a flash in my mind, but, you know, as far as the whole situation, I don't remember. And the day passes, and Vanessa starts to get worried, and she's like, where where are my kids? What's going on? And then the police call and say, hey, we found your son, Frederick, um, roaming around near this farmland type of area but David was not with him. And you have to imagine the panic uh, Vanessa felt. Grateful that 
Frederick is okay, but oh my God, what has happened to David? So your mother, what did she tell you later about what happened? Did she describe uh, the woman to you or anything that happened? How did she explain it? She really didn't describe anything because it was like, you know, she was still had hope for David. She was doing stuff, you know, behind the scenes trying to find David. She didn't really, because it was a touchy subject for her to really sit there and describe, you know, and then have to relive it over because she could have lost, she could have lost both of her sons. I mean, she lost one, but she could have lost both of us. So it was kind of a touchy subject. It was something that she really didn't really talk about that much. It's like kept to her, you know, because it was, it was hurting. It was a hurting feeling to her. So she really didn't talk about it as much. Shortly after David's disappearance, Vanessa received a strange but telling phone call. That day or the next day, within a short period of time after David was stolen, Vanessa got a phone call at the house from a woman. Um, Detectives now believe that this was the abductor. And it was a very brief phone call, and the person asked what kind of formula This phone call is important because if this person was David's abductor, calling his mother to ask what brand of formula he takes shows that David was likely being cared for and looked after. All of these traits are similar to the profile we discussed with Nekmek, a woman of childbearing age who wants to raise a child as her own. Another theory about this woman was that she was actively looking for any infant in the area. It was highly suspected that this woman used local baby announcements to find David, and someone matching her description was seen at a different home, running a similar scam in an attempt to take a child. In the Daily Press, there was a list of birth announcements in the newspaper. And the theory is that this woman went through the birth announcements to find where there were going to be infant children. Sure enough, David's announcement was in there, which was common at that time. And then there's also information in the case file that says that a woman matching the same description, I believe, showed up at another house in the neighborhood where there was an infant, but that mother told the woman no. That is so terrifying. It, 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 is, it is quite terrifying. If you think about birth announcements, it's a happy time. You're excited to do it. But, you know, if, if, if you're in the business of selling babies and there's a birth announcement list, they, they use that to their advantage. The next major development in David's case happened a few days later when someone reported finding David's baby bag. Well, and then, and then the other crazy part um, is the fact that they found David's clothes on the Colonial Parkway. So to give you some perspective, um, that is maybe about a 30-minute drive from David's house, from the family house. So this person had to have wanted to leave his things in an area where where they thought no one would go looking. but someone someone found the diaper bag. They had to have tossed the diaper bag as they were driving. 
When Jessica became interested in the case, she got investigators to take a fresh look at it, effectively getting it reopened. When I saw the story on the Charlie Project blog and reached out to Newport News and shared with them the details, they broke out the case file and I, that's when I was able to confirm everything and get additional information as well. And they were um, extremely eager to reopen the case and assigned Detective Amber Rogers to the case. I remember when she called, she said, oh my God, there is an evidence bag in our storage. And that was just an oh my God moment. That was incredible. And so when they laid out all of his clothes on the table and, and I got to go in and see it, it was just like, it was already real to me, but it was almost like he went back in time because you see his little clothes, you see, him as his mom last saw him when she put him in this woman's hands. Thank goodness the Newport News Police Department preserved that evidence as well as they did because they were able to go back and do DNA testing and that hasn't um, linked anything so far but just in case something does happen and they keep those records they, they have those things, so that that's huge. That is huge. Did they find, do you know if they found any, like, unknown person's DNA on there? It looks like the hair that they found in the comb um, was David's or, or Vanessa's. But it will help if there's ever, you know, a man one day that comes forward or is found, you know, any type of testing to help confirm that he is David Lockett whenever that day comes. You know, you, you look at the evidence, and the evidence may point this way or that way, but sometimes it's just a gut feeling that that person is out there, and I believe that David Blockett is alive, that he's out there, and, and I truly believe that he's going to be the one to come forward and say, I think this is me. An early theory in the case was published in Ebony Magazine in 1986. This article, which we have a link to on our website, discusses David and his abductor and published the police artist's sketch of her. The article suggests that David's abduction may have been a part of something bigger. There has been other um, links drawn to try to get a grasp of things that Ebony Magazine did a feature on black baby abductions. And there was a theory then that there was a ring of people stealing black babies. And um, David's case was profiled in there um, as a question of was, was David's abduction a part of this black baby selling ring? We all had our theories about who it could possibly be, or was it, uh, you know, was it a family that stole him, or was he taken and sold anonymously? You know, there, there's just so many theories out there. Um, but here's the other thing: if the person who took him is still happens to be in the Newport News Hampton Roads area, they've seen the story and they know that it's on the radar again. You know, I don't know if it's going to be a matter of us figuring out who David is, him figuring out who it is for himself, or the person who sold him one day coming forward and saying, hey, I can't take the guilt anymore. I, I have to tell you what I did. Do you have any theories for what you think happened to him? I believe David was sold because his dad had a whole lot of dirty dealers. 
from what I understand. And I believe that's one of the reasons why they got back at his daddy and to David, or his daddy has something to do with it. You know, that's just my thinking. I'm not saying that it's true, um, but I just got that feeling, you know, because of just the type of person he was. So um, Fred West, I, I knew from talking to Frederick Blockett that um, Fred West had, you know, been in and out of jail. And I said, oh, you know, that's his only living parent. We have to, you know, find him. And found out that he was he was serving time. You know, we reached out to the jail and said, hey, do you think that, you know, he'd be willing to talk to us about his son? And we did our first interview with him from behind bars. That was heartbreaking um, because... Fred West, you can tell he has a good heart, um, you know, has made the best decisions in life, but you can tell his heart's in the right place and he 100% regrets not being there. And so he carries that burden that, hey, if I hadn't been locked up and I had been home, David would have never been stolen. Fred West, David's dad, carries a huge weight on, on, on his shoulders. You know, I know he, he dreams about a day that he'll meet David and, you know, he he dreams that David has done well and has lived a great life and, you know, has had good parents and, and, and all those things. With his mother's death in 1997, Frederick holds out hope that he will get to see his brother again. David's birthday is in November. I was three and I'll be 39. So probably around 35, 36. I really, you know, I, I really wish, you know, and I know this was something that my mom wanted to be able to see David again before she died. So me being the oldest, I, I do want the same thing. I want to be able to see my brother again, you know, before I leave this earth. I'm looking at cases every day. I go to Walmart and look at the wall of people missing. It's, it's not enough attention on that stuff. It's like these, you know, they, they, they see it, and for the moment, it's hot, but then it, it just fade away. It's like people really just don't care anymore. Anything when it comes to missing people, it should be, it should draw everybody's attention. Just imagine if that was your loved one, or that was somebody else's loved one, or somebody close to you. How would you feel? You know, I mean, and that's how I look at it. I, I haven't been a victim of this. I know how I feel when somebody goes missing and you haven't seen them in a long time. People need that support because, I mean, you, you really don't know what can happen to your loved one. When the case was reopened, there were new leads that didn't pan out. Do you know what those were and if they're relevant in any way? There were some um, in terms of the, someone called and said, oh, the abductor looks a lot like this person, or, you know, I think it, it, it might be this or that, and, and they didn't pan out. But I, I do believe that we're getting closer. You know, it's just a matter of someone knows, and, and, and that person is going to have to have the courage to speak out. You know, you never know what bit of information will trigger something in someone else to say, oh, oh my God you know, maybe I'm his brother. In his mid-30s now, um, he may or may not be married, may or may not have kids, um, starting to have certain questions that 
if his parents stole him, they're not going to be able to answer that. Things start to not add up. One of the incredible components of this is that David had some very distinguishing birthmarks. The, there's a birthmark on his back, there's a birthmark on his buttocks, and there's another birthmark, I believe, in his right ear. So you got to imagine, if he happens upon this podcast and is listening to these details and starts to look in the mirror and you have that moment like, oh my God, is this me? I really, really do pray for Frederick Blockett, for uh, Frederick West, David's dad, for their other brother, um, for their family, that there will be closure, um, and a closure in the form of a, of a happy ending to where, you know, David, wherever he is and wh whoever he may go by now, um, you know, that there is a joy in reuniting with the family and, and knowing where he comes from and knowing that he was loved. I miss my brother. Yeah, I wish we had a chance to grow up, you know, together so that, you know, I know him, he know me. I just wish that we had that opportunity, but things happen, so we didn't get that opportunity. And I still got hope in my heart that he's still alive, and, you know, I'm hoping that I can see him, be able to see him one day, um, you know, get down and sit down and talk to him and really tell him, you know, how much he's loved and how much he was missed. David Ezel Blockett was 15 days old when he went missing on December 11th, 1980. Today, he would be 36 years old. He has brown skin and had thick, curly hair as a baby. As Jessica mentioned, David had distinguishing birthmarks on his left arm, his back, and his buttocks. On the Charlie Project, it is noted that he had a mole on his right ear. If you have any information, please contact the Newport News Police. Contact information is on our website. You can also email us at thinairpodcast at gmail.com anonymously, and we will pass your information along. In addition to David Blockett, Charlotte Moriarty, Steve Carter's biological mother, also remains missing. Today, Charlotte would be 71 years old. When she went missing, she was with her infant son, now known as Steve Carter. She is a white female with thick, curly brown hair. You can find pictures and links to all the resources we used in today's episode on our website, thinairpodcast.com. Thank you to Steve Carter, Katie Spina, Jessica Larche, and Frederick Blockett for speaking with us on today's topic and stories. These are very sensitive stories of children going missing, and it really means a lot that especially Frederick Blockett and Steve Carter were willing to speak with us as they were personally affected by these issues. We'd also like to thank our assistant producer, Nate Halda, for all the work he did in helping put this episode together, as well as our intern, Claudia Drace, for all her amazing interning work. We'd also like to thank our $15 tier Patreon donors who are honorary producers. They are Mistella Pena, Bonnie Mortensen, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Music in today's episode is brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions. To check out their collection of music, visit their website, sessions.blue. Thank you all so much. Without your support, all of this wouldn't be possible. If you'd like to become a donor, head over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast and choose your reward. 
Join us again for a brand new missing persons case in two weeks. 